This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, July 10th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. The Community Reinvestment Act was supposed to help lower-income borrowers get access to mortgage financing. The law's goals are not well-defined, and it's not clear that there's a specific need the law is effectively meeting today. Diego Zilawaga is author of a new Cato paper on the Community Reinvestment Act. We spoke last week. So the Community Reinvestment Act was a piece of legislation passed in 1977, and it aimed to end the practice of quote-unquote redlining, which had been prevalent since the 1930s uh, at least, and was basically lending discrimination aimed at minority and low-income communities. From the time of the New Deal, the home loan banks and the uh, Federal Housing Agency uh, instructed institutions uh, to lend in certain areas, but also discouraged them from lending in what were considered high-risk areas. And high-risk was often a euphemism for a high density of minority populations uh, and immigrant populations and low-income people. And as a result of that discouragement, credit didn't flow uh, as freely and as easily into those communities as to others. There's a tremendous legacy of uh, of wealth inequality and uh, and inequality of, uh, you know, social services and, you know, community services as a result. And the CRA, when passed in 1977, intended to redress uh, some of that. And it's considered part of the anti-discrimination legislation of that period, with other measures being the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, all of which were aimed at making sure that credit went to the more credit worthy uh, rather than to specific demographics. Since uh, the law was passed, what have been the measurable effects of it on uh, borrowing and lending and homeownership for lower-income people? The interesting thing is that even at the time of the CRA's passage, regulators and people who were looking at the legislation were skeptical that it could work very effectively. The CRA says that banks should lend in the communities where they conduct business. The way regulators have since the 1970s interpreted that is that banks should lend roughly in proportion to the deposits that they collect in different areas, in the areas where they have branches, offices, or ATMs. And they've been uh, assessing, grading uh, banks on their performance uh, on that basis. There are a number of different criteria, but the main one is lending, mortgages and small business lending. And the people looking at this legislation in the 70s already had skepticism because they were worried that this lending would either be risky or unprofitable, would go to ventures that Uh, shouldn't get credit because they uh, couldn't get credit on the terms suggested, or that it would be superfluous, that that such credit would have flown to uh, those borrowers anyway, and therefore the legislation was unnecessary. Now, some of those worries have been vindicated over time. There's some evidence that banks tend to lend to more risky borrowers and increase their lending volumes right in advance of CRA evaluations. It seems, therefore, that they want to please the regulators uh, and uh, lend more. 
quite uh, irrespective of the impact that might have on their balance sheet. Uh, specifically, the evidence suggests that banks lend about 5% more in advance of CRA evaluations, and those loans are about 15% riskier than uh, other equivalent loans uh, made in other periods. Uh, alongside that, there's also some evidence that lending that qualifies for CRA points uh, is not going necessarily to the neediest or the lowest income or the uh, least served borrowers, but rather to borrowers on relatively high incomes living in areas that qualify for CRA points. Now, the reason that happens is that there are two criteria that regulators use when they're giving credit uh, for the Community Reinvestment Act or for Community Reinvestment Act fulfillment. The first one is credit to borrowers who have less than 80% of the median income of the area where they live. And the second criterion is credit to borrowers who live in areas that have a low income relative to the income of the wider area where they're located. And by the second criterion, you can see how relatively high income borrowers could receive credit so long as they live in those types of areas, and the bank that makes the credit could still get CRA credit. Those are some of the problems uh, with with um, CRA compliance and the effectiveness of the statute. Uh, but there are others in terms of the transformation of the U.S. banking landscape over the last 42 years since the CRA was passed, which also have made it increasingly ineffective. So for people who are concerned about gentrification, uh, the the use of C the application of CRA credits should be very concerning. Yes, I think people who worry about bank safety and soundness should be worried because there is evidence that some of this lending may compromise the balance sheets of banks. But also, people who care about bringing credit to underserved communities shouldn't be particularly happy about the CRA, because, for example, in the DC area, I've looked at some of the data uh, on mortgage lending from the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. This is official data submitted by uh, banks, and if you crunch the numbers, something like two thirds of the lending of the mortgage lending that's eligible for uh, CRA credit by regulators is going to high-income borrowers who wouldn't qualify for CRA credit, would it not be for the fact, were it not for the fact that they live in low-income areas? So the people that the statute ostensibly intends to help, the historic residents of minority communities, uh, low-income people, they're not the main recipients, it seems, of the lending that gives banks CRA points. So who tends to benefit from uh, CRA in terms of people who live in lower-income areas but have otherwise perfectly adequate incomes? Well, they, on the margin, the people who live in those kinds of areas might benefit to the extent that they get a loan that would otherwise have been um, made to another community. But because there's the CRA element to consider there, a bank might be more willing to uh, make it in that particular area. But the main beneficiaries are community groups that have been for years now funded by uh, banks uh, because they can oppose, this is an important consideration in terms of the CRA, uh, regulators use CRA ratings, the, point, the overall points that banks get, when they're looking at applications by that bank to either expand their facilities or to merge with another institution. Now, the impact that has had, because these reports are made public, is that 
community groups can oppose a bank merger on the grounds that the bank isn't doing enough to serve that community. And the way that banks have handled that opposition is both by giving fu direct funding to those community groups and also by committing uh, lending to uh, particular areas in advance of a merger. So to give you some idea of the magnitude of those commitments, between 1992 and 2007, so right before the financial crisis, banks had made about $4.5 trillion worth of lending commitments as part of the Community Reinvestment Act. That doesn't mean that all of that lending happened, but it does mean that it was a non-negligible factor in uh, banks' uh, ability to merge and uh, in banks' lending decisions as well to some extent. There is a dividing line here between banks and pretty much everybody else. Uh, banks are the only ones regulated under uh, CRA. That's right. At the time when the CRA was passed, this may have made some sense because banks were the main source of mortgage and small business lending in the 1970s and credit unions, which were the and remain the main uh, other source uh, of lending or one of the other source of lending. There are others today, uh, of course, but credit unions have a special provision that means their services are not necessarily of a geographic kind. The, the communities they serve are not necessarily geographic. They may be professionals. Uh, people who work in the same area of business or people who have some other kind of bond. And so it wasn't deemed at the time appropriate to bring them under uh, the kind of uh, requirements that the CRA prescribed. What's clear yeah, though the is that- Credit unions are generally a membership organization. That's right. right. And that membership relate, can relate to geographic factors such as where you live, but it may also relate to your occupation, your provenance, uh, your you know affiliation with uh, other civic organizations. And so the kind of geographic link that the CRA establishes between deposit taking and lending uh, was deemed less appropriate for credit unions and they were exempted from the statute at the time. What's happened in the intervening four decades is that an increasing amount and increasing still today of mortgage and small business lending is done by non-banks increasingly what are called fintech or online lenders. And these are non-deposit taking institutions uh, that um, make uh, borrow wholesale from the capital markets and will lend that to uh, home buyers and small businesses. And with an increasing share of lending happening through these channels, the CRA's reach has become less. What's curious, of course, is that these organizations don't do any less lending to the sort of communities that the CRA intends to help than banks. In fact, they do slightly more mortgage lending uh, to low-income communities as a share of their entire lending than banks currently uh, do. So it doesn't seem like the CRA um, or the, the absence of the CRA is acting as a deterrent uh, to their lending to low-income communities. To give you just another figure, Caleb, uh, of the low-income mortgages guaranteed by the uh, Federal Housing Agency, three-quarters are now originated by non-bank, primarily fintech lenders. Banks are the only ones regulated under CRA. What is expected of them? So regulators look at a variety 
of measures of bank performance when they're giving them ratings for the CRA. But the main one is lending. Again, mortgage and small business lending. They also look at how much they're investing in communities that qualify for CRA points. And they look at the kinds of services that are provided there, say how how long uh, during the day offices are open, uh, how many ATMs there are, uh, and things like that. But the main indicator that regulators use is lending. And again, they relate lending to the share of deposit in that community that a particular bank takes and how much uh, lending other banks in the competition uh, are doing. So it's both a comparative and an absolute standard that they use. It seems clear that banks want to uh, remain in compliance with the CRA and uh, issue adequate loans in specific areas while also minimizing their own risks, maintaining their own profits. But what do individual borrowers get out of uh, CRA regulation? So there are two parts uh, to that issue. The first one is from the bank's perspective, the CRA is a relatively onerous regulation to comply with. It's a lot of paperwork. Uh, There are potentially quite significant consequences if the results are bad in terms of if you get a bad rating, you might have difficulty merging with another institution or expanding in the future. You might have reputational risk associated with a bad rating. And so banks spend a a not insignificant amount of resources complying with the CRA. According to surveys I've seen of community banks, about 7.5% of compliance costs uh, are associated with the CRA. So as a share of the total compliance burden that a financial institution may face on an annual basis, about just over 7% relates to the CRA. From the borrower's perspective, what the incentives created by the CRA mean is that as a bank, what I'm interested in is making lending that will get me CRA points while at the same time remaining safe and sound. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that kind of uh, trade-off or cost-benefit analysis from the bank's perspective because the bank, as you were saying, has to do well by its shareholders, it has to do well by its customers, and because banks are so heavily regulated and supervised, obviously they also uh, care a lot about what regulators have to say. Now, a way to handle the trade-off between, on one hand, safety and soundness, on the other hand, fulfilling the lending requirements of the CRA is to move lending to low-income areas which qualify for CRA points, while at the same time focusing the lending on the more credit-worthy borrowers. Uh, And because credit risk correlates inversely with income, meaning the more you earn, the less risky a borrower you typically are, a lot of CRA lending seems to end up going to higher income borrowers living in low income areas. By my calculations, according to the uh, data from the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act, so official data submitted by banks, about two thirds of CRA eligible lending in the DC area is going to high income borrowers. Now, if you have been observing what's been going on in the DC area for the last 20 years. There's been a tremendous amount of gentrification and neighborhood change in those two decades. And so I would wager that a lot of those income, high income borrowers that are recipients of CRA eligible lending are the newer residents that are arriving in these neighborhoods who would on their own perfectly qualify for such credit. So what may be interesting is that CRA lending is actually contributing to the acceleration of gentrification and neighborhood change, which regardless of the view you take on gentrification, I think we can all agree it's not the job of public policy to engage in that kind of uh, activity. What should happen to the CRA? 
The CRA, I think, has served whatever purpose it could serve over the last four decades. And it's time to look at how the goals of the CRA uh, can be better fulfilled without the side effects that I have outlined. And so in terms of avoiding discrimination against vulnerable groups, we already have statutes in place, such as the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the Federal Housing Act, and various other regulations that uh, aim at equal treatment of people regardless of race and sex and age and so on. And uh, the CRA seems superfluous in that regard. And uh, it doesn't seem to be serving the purpose uh, of bringing credit to underserved areas uh, in the way that was intended, at least not anymore. The banking landscape in the United States now is much more competitive because over the last 25 years, we have a major expansion of bank branches so that local banking markets now are very competitive. And also we've had a rise of non-bank lenders that are plugging the gaps in a lot of the communities that were traditionally underserved and are bringing credit on a sound basis and on a profitable basis to uh, people. And it seems that they're bringing such credit at lower rates than used to happen. So a lot of the issues that were identified as problems to be resolved by the CRA are being resolved by the market. I think the case for repeal of the CRA is strong. However, what I recommend as a halfway measure, if repeal is considered too radical for the time being, is to turn the CRA into a system of tradable obligations. What I mean by that is that banks, which are bound by the CRA, should be able to pay specialist organizations such as fintech lenders, which serve a lot of these low-income communities, or community development organizations or other groups to fulfill CRA lending on their behalf. They would pay them a fee, and these organizations would then have skin in the game, would be responsible for the lending that happened, and therefore we could find out what the actual cost of fulfilling this regulation is because the fee would reflect that cost. So we're getting a bit more of a market incentive structure built into the system to address some of the more egregious uh, negative effects uh, that the CRA seems to have had in its 42 years of existence. Diego Zuluaga is author of The Community Reinvestment Act in the Age of Fintech and Bank Competition. It's available now at Cato.org. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 